up 1 John chapter 4. You can open there if you haven't already. We get to look at love this morning. Darren mentioned that. Uh, We've looked at love a lot in this epistle. That may not surprise you if you um, are a student of your Bible. You'd know that John, the author of this epistle, the author of the Gospel John, uh, he's oftentimes called or referred to as the Apostle of Love. So we know that John talks about love a lot. He teaches about love a lot. He teaches on it thoroughly and, and often. Um, and so we get to look at love today. We've looked at this several times, John's teaching on love, as we've gone through this epistle. And maybe many of you are tired of hearing about love. Uh, you know these verses, 1 John 4, 7, let us love one another. You're like, okay, I've heard John say that a bunch of times throughout this epistle. Maybe you're getting a little tired of it, or maybe you feel like you're familiar with the biblical doctrine uh, and biblical teaching on love, and I hope I can add some fresh perspective to that this morning, and I hope that we can receive from John this morning as we uh, uh, hear uh, what he has to say to us through the Holy Spirit who inspired his writing. And uh, it's interesting if you um, do uh, any sort of survey with um, with folks on what love is, you get a variety of answers. I was interrogating my kids this week on what love is, and I was asking them. We, we talk about this from time to time. I'll say, what is love? I was, I was kind of interrogating them on this, looking for some content, and uh, they um, always have such good answers. You know, If they're kind of busy doing stuff and they want to talk, they go, I don't know, I don't know. And then they go, no, come on, let's talk about this, because we talk about love all the time. We tell them we love them. They tell us they love us. We read them Bible stories where love is a common theme. We have a catechism we go through with them where we talk about love, but it's good from time to time to step back and, and say, well, what is this that we're talking about? This morning, I wrote it down, or yesterday, rather, um, uh, I asked Haddon, I said, what is love? And some of the answers he's given me, um, I say, Haddon, what is love? My four-year-old. And I said, what is love? And he says, he sat and thought about it, and he goes, well, you love people. I'm like, yeah, that's a great answer. It's a great answer. It's kind of one of those hard things to describe. Like, if I asked you, what is truth? How would you describe that? Like, well, it's when you tell the truth. I don't know how, you know, it's kind of one of those hard things to describe. That's kind of what he was thinking. I, you love people. And I get what he was saying. He was saying, well, I don't know how to define that, but I know that it's something you do with others and for others and to others. That's, I think, what he was trying to say. I asked him to elaborate. I said, okay, what do you do with others? How do you love others? And he says, well, you play with them. I'm like, yeah, duh. Of course, of course, that's what you would say. You play with them. He says, and you share with them. I said, that's very good. That's very good. You play with them and you share with them. You share your time. You share yourself. You share your possessions. You share your toys. I said, Mabel, what's, what do you think love is? She just goes, mommy. I'm like, very good. Very good. I was texting with, uh, with, uh, Austin, uh, this morning and I said, Hey, ask your kids what, 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 what love is and tell me what they say. And uh, Daniel said, when you love someone and care for them. He said, what's love when you love someone and care for them? Really good answer. And he asked his daughter, Lily, what is love? And Lily said, love means Daniel. <laughs> so from the mouth of babes, you just have to love that, right? They, they're, they're thinking about it. Their wheels are turning. And it's good for parents to step back and, and ask those questions to their kids. What, what is love? How do we describe love? How do we think about love? Instead of just something we say, as good as it is to teach them, how to say that and how to express that. We also want them to think about what they're saying and and kind of get their wheels turning on that. Well, uh, John uh, is going to define love for us this morning. He's going to take us all the way back to the origin of love. Love is a 
uh, part of God's common grace to us. We, we understand uh, everybody has a conception of love. Uh, Non-Christians have a conception of love. It's not just for a special group of people. Uh, everybody knows what love is. That's because of God's common grace. It's because we're made in God's image. God himself is loving. Uh, in fact, this is the first point for your outline. God himself is love. Not only is he loving, but he is love. And because we're created in God's image, all human beings as part as image bearers of God uh, understand and experience and can express various forms of love. But it all starts with God. God is love. This is what John says in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for, here's why, love is from God. So he's the origin. He's the giver of love. He's the one that dispenses love. Love is from God. And whoever uh, loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God himself is love. Love is from God. And God himself is love. John takes us to the very origin and essence of love. God is love. Very simple and yet profound truth about God from the scriptures. To understand love then, we must understand God. To have a true understanding, a proper understanding of love, we must understand God. We look at non-Christians, we look at ourselves before we were Christians, and some people think like, well, if you're not a Christian, you don't understand love at all. Well, that's not true. We are image bearers of God. Uh, we do reflect God, and, and in addition, because of God's common grace, uh, even those who, of us uh, who are not Christians can experience and express love, but there is something severely lacking. The, the primary object of love is in the wrong place because God's out of the equation, so God needs to be the ultimate object of love. In addition, understanding where the love comes from is lacking. And so without God, we can experience a shadow of love, but we can't understand what love truly is, what it was actually intended for, and how it was actually intended to be expressed and, and understood because it begins with God. To understand love fully, we must start with God. The problem even for us is that uh, much of what we're exposed to, what we've heard and seen, listened to, uh, is, is a definition and understanding of love that's from culture and not from Christ. Uh, it's from the world and not from the scriptures. Right? We're immersed in, in, uh, in a cultural understanding of love. The culture, our culture, really has, has hijacked love. Uh, and the culture's approach and definition to love is completely different than the biblical approach and definition of love. And all culture is, is really just the outworking of human desires and human values. And right? so you have humans who are in different places, and as people groups progress, they develop certain values, they develop certain preferences, they develop certain language, certain foods, and all of those values turned outward is really what culture becomes. And all of us, again, have an understanding of love. And so when we begin to create culture as humans, there's some love woven in there, right? But it's always going to be different than what the Bible teaches on love because it's distorted by human fallenness and sinfulness at human values and not informed by biblical truth and biblical values. The culture's love is much different than biblical love. Culture's love often is sexualized. So culture, or so, 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 so love becomes this kind of impassioned desire, and that's what people would point to often and say, that's what love is when you feel passion, particularly sexual desire. That is love. That's a form of love. That's maybe the culture would say one of the primary things it means to love. Love in the culture is often idealized. And that means it draws us in uh, emotionally, and it creates false standards for us. 
And so if love is idealized, then we're going to have a wrong idea of love and we're going to be looking for a particular person who looks a particular way, who dresses a particular way, who wears a certain type of makeup, who has a certain type of body, who has a certain type of job, who you can fill in the blank. But that's the ideal person to be with. And so we have these standards that are unrealistic and and oftentimes ungodly. And we're looking for this particular type of person that we can love in this particular type of passionate way. That's the idealized love. In addition, culture's love is often personal and subjective. Love becomes something of a preference. We can choose how to love, do that however we want, who to love, when to love. It becomes preferential and we end up defining love for ourselves. That's very classic, modern, cultural love. So when we're immersed in cultural love and the cultural understanding of love, then we come to the Bible and then all of a sudden we're seeing the Bible now, sometimes unaware. We're seeing the Bible through this lens of culture. And then we superimpose, and we see love in Scripture, then we superimpose this, this understanding of love that's not biblical, but we superimpose that on Scripture And we come to all kinds of false conclusions and oftentimes strange conclusions about Scripture and Scripture's teaching on love. Love is not just passion. It's not just emotion. It's not preference. We cannot start with culture to understand love. We can't start with a personal definition when it comes to love. We can't start with some idea of love. Love is not just a feeling. It's not just an idea We don't start with an idea. We start with God. We need to start with the person because love is actually a person. It's not an idea. It's a person. That's what John says. Love, God is love. Love is from God and God himself is love. So we start with the person of love. We start with God. John says, let us love one another because love is from God. Whoever has been born of God and knows God loves God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I want you to notice that he does not say love is God. He does not say love is God. The passion of attraction and the power of emotion and the relationship where someone might say, okay, that's where my love is primarily located. If I can consider what love is and and, and where it's primarily expressed, I'm going to point to this relationship here and that to me is love. The passion, the power, the relationship, none of those things are, are God. None of those things are ultimate. None of those things can be controlling in our lives. They must not be controlling. They often are controlling. They must not be controlling principles in our lives because love is not God. Okay, we see this idea in pop culture culture all the time. We see it in songs that are written about romance and relationships. I mean, there if you think about it, there's a whole genre of music that is based on breakups. Right? It's called country western music. <laughs> the whole genre is based on breakups. At least true country is. All right, pop country may be about, I don't know, light beer or something. But, <laughs> but true country is based on breakups, right? Like Hank, or Hank Sr., like my bleeding heart. I mean, that's where it all comes from. It's all based on breakups. Okay, so if love is God, and I think I love somebody, and then we break up, 
my whole world's going to fall apart. I'll have no identity. I'll have no bearing in life. I won't know what to do because my whole identity and my whole personhood and everything that I thought I was is wrapped up in this relationship that I consider the primal expression of love. And so uh, now I'm a mess because that's gone or that's broken or that's damaged. That's called an idol. We make love God. Love is not God. Songs are written about this. Books are written about this. Self-help books, how to love books, all those sorts of things. Celebrities dole out advice on love constantly through all sorts of media mediums. As if anyone cares what someone who's been divorced 16 times and is 29 years old, as if anyone cares what that person has to say about love. I don't know why anyone would think that'd be valuable, sound, good wisdom. It's not, but we live in a celebrity culture, so if somebody's famous for doing very little and they look good, then we say, oh, I need their advice. I need to follow them on Twitter and get their proverbs from, tw- from Twitter. I need to hear what they have to say. It's false love, and it becomes a false idol, oftentimes even among Christians. Love can become controlling and ultimate and sometimes idolatrous. Okay, Christians buy into this cultural ideal of the perfect person or this perfect Christian that I need to meet. And young Christians go to Bible college or meet Christian friends or go to their church and they look for that and they realize, I can't find this ideal guy or this ideal gal. There's always something missing. I'm always looking for something different. This isn't what I heard about from my youth pastor. And so I can't find the perfect person who's who's just godly enough. And so they're 23 years old and mildly depressed because they're not in a relationship yet. That's making love God. That's making a relationship God. It's making love for another person or desire for another person, marriage, engagement. It's, It's turning those into things of worship and not into gifts, recognizing them as gifts that become ultimate things and idolatrous things. Even people in relationships can become enamored with the other person and their relationship can become the controlling aspect of life. You know, we can idolize our spouse. We can idolize our kids. We can idolize those who we're supposed to love with all of our heart. And yet when the love gets in the wrong spot, if it begins to creep up to God's spot to where God should be, it becomes disordered and it therefore becomes idolatrous. This can happen to Christians in relationships. This can happen to Christians uh, in relationships in addition where there's unhealth in the relationship and you can see the idolatrous tendency because when there's unhealth, the Christian should want to say, hey, I need, I need my brothers and sisters to speak into my life to help me make this better. And when there's resistance to that and pushback to that and we don't want to change it, we don't want to listen, we don't want to let go of what we have, folks, that's an idol. That's an idol. So this can happen with Christians as well. We need to understand love is not God. John says it clearly. Not that love is God, but that God is love. The other thing we need to point out about this is that love is not all God is. Love is not all God is. Some will point to this passage and say, see, God is love and nothing else. God is love and nothing else. And that's code for anything that doesn't fit my definition of love is not godly. Okay, God is love and nothing else. So 
if you say something mean or if you believe a certain thing about God, if it doesn't fit with my definition of love, I'll point to this verse and say, that's not true. God can't be judgmental. He can't have wrath. He can't have anger. He can't be righteous like you're saying he's righteous because he's just love. And so if I superimpose my definition of love on 1 John 8, 4, 8, then what you're saying about God doesn't fit with, with, with my God and how I think he loves well, alone, just in, even in 1 John, John refers to God. He says God is also light. Well, God isn't only light, but he is light. God is true, John says elsewhere in this epistle. God is not only true, but he certainly is true. Love is not all God is. Okay, this is, this is what John's getting at when he says this, when he says God is love. What he means is that love is, is part of God's very nature. Part of what it means to be God is to be love. It's part of God's very nature. It's embedded, if we can so speak this way, in the fabric of his nature. It's part of who he is. One author says, as the sun gives light, it gives light because it is light. The sun is light. Fire gives heat because it is heat. So God is love and gives love and emits love like the sun emits light or like a fire emits heat. But we wouldn't look at the sun and say, all it is is light. Nothing else going on there. No, there's a lot going on there. But certainly one of the defining characteristics, part of what the sun is, is it emits light. That's similar to God with love. We also need to understand that God doesn't just do loving things sometimes. That's not what John means. God doesn't just do loving things sometimes. Rather, God being love, listen, all he does is done in love. That's part of what it means that God is love. Every single thing that God does is done in love. All of God's attributes are always at work in everything he does perfectly all the time. So when God judges, as the Bible says that he does, when God judges, he's judging in love. When God judges, he takes into account all of his sovereign knowledge. When God judges, he does so in perfect mercy. And all of God's attributes work together all the time perfectly. So everything God does, he does in love. All of God's acts, actions, decisions are all perfectly loving. They're all done in love. They're all done from love because God is love. God is loving in every single act and activity he has ever done throughout the course of history. All of it perfectly loving. Think about if you invite strangers into your home to be hospitable to them. You invite them into your home. You give them showers. You give them food. You say, stay here as long as you want. Get back up on your feet. I want to love you. I want to care for you. I want to help you. And they say, thanks a bunch. And they come into your house and they start eating all your food and they start wreaking havoc and they make a mess and they don't clean up and they start being mean and rude and abusive to your family. And you say, well, you've lost your privilege. Get out of my house now. You can't, you can't be here and, and treat my home this way. It's my house. I need to follow my rules. You can't treat my family this way. Would you look at that and say, wow, you're very judgmental and that's unloving. You'd say, no, I would say, no, of course not. You're being loving to your family. 
and to allow these strangers to continue to wreak havoc in your home would be unloving to your family. Like it is when God judges. He's doing it in perfect love. Just as when we kick someone to the curb in that situation, we're doing so in love. So to know love, we must know God because God is love. Love is not God, and, and, and love is not all God is, but God is love. To know God, to know love, we need to start with God. We need to start with God because He is love. The question then is, what does that look like? What does that look like? How do we flesh that out? And that brings us to our second point. God has loved. God is love, but God also has loved. He has loved. Say, how did he love? Well, God gave us his son first. That's how he loved. Verse 9, in this is love. In this, the love of God, rather, was made manifest among us. This is how we see God's love. This is how he displays it. This is how he shows it. This is how we understand it. Here's the first thing that John points to. In this, the love of God was made manifest and clear and concrete among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. John says again, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God has loved. Namely, He sent His Son. God gave us His Son. John says, do you want to see love most clearly? Do you want to see love most concretely? God Himself came. God is love and God became a man. God became a man to dwell among us, among us for us, for our benefit, for our good, on our behalf. He came to earth as a man, the eternal God, sovereign creator, who's, who's clothed in glory and majesty, who dwells in harmonious perfection with celestial beings. He came to earth as a man. He came to earth as a man. Now listen, you think 2020 has been a hard year? Try living in one in Jerusalem. I mean, everybody had a difficult life. Every single person had a difficult life. You had filth and disease and danger everywhere. You had to work hard. Most people were uneducated. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, this year's been so hard. Can we open my fridge stocked up on stuff from Costco? Well, at least I get to have some nice meals and good snacks and gain a little bit of quarantine weight. Not the case in one. Not the case in year one. All right? It was a difficult life. It was a difficult world. That's the world that Jesus came into as a humble peasant who worked a difficult job as a carpenter, blue-collar, John says, if you want to see love most clearly, look at, look at the gift God gave us. God gave us his son. God himself came to earth as a man. And our catechism I go through with my kids, we're on these, these questions now. We spend a little bit more time on them because they're starting to get more complex. But the kids are doing great. And some of the questions they go, so one of them is, um, what is it? I wrote it down. Uh, oh, Jesus' nature. What is Jesus' nature? That's how I condense the question. It's a little bit more complicated. I say, what is Jesus' nature? And, and the kids say, Fully God and fully man. Right? Fully God and fully man. Okay, that's right. God became a man. You say, why did he have to become a man? Why did he have to become a man? And they say, well, to live in our place and die in our place. Perfect. 
That's exactly right. God, who's Jesus, who's fully God, fully man, comes to earth so that he can live in our place and die in our place. That's why he has to be a man. He has to be God because only God can absorb the wrath of God. So he has to absorb the wrath of God, and only God is perfectly righteous, so he has to live a righteous life for us in our place because we've not lived righteous lives. But that's why he has to be a man, so he can live in our place and die in our place. That's why Jesus came. That is the gift of God to us. That's what we're going to look at in December as we celebrate Advent. God came to man. We're pretty jacked up overall, and God came to save us. Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, listen, so that we might live through him. Ephesians 2.1 says we're dead in our sins. John 4.9 says that we live through Christ. There's no greater gift imaginable than the son of God himself coming among us. But in addition, it's not just his coming that is important. It's not just his coming, but there's more to the gift. It's not just his appearing, but what he appeared to do, what he came to do, what his actual mission was. The Son of God came, but what did he come to do? Verse 10, John answers the question for us, and this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be, you can circle that, here's the purpose, here's the mission, to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus says, as clear as day, I've come to seek and save the lost. That's what he says in one of the Gospels. Jesus says, I've come not to be served as a king, but to serve as a slave, as a servant. And to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus was acutely aware of his mission. John here confirms this was Jesus' mission. God became a man. He actually appeared among us. But he, he came to do a specific thing. To be the propitiation for our sins. Some of your translations might say atoning sacrifice means that God took our sin. Jesus took our sin. He atoned for our sin. He satisfied God's wrath, the penalty for our sin. Uh, Philippians 2a says something, something to the effect of uh, that, that, he, that Jesus himself took on the form of a man. He took on the form of a servant. And, it, and, and Paul says, even to death. So it would have been, a, I mean, it would have been, Mind-boggling enough that Jesus takes on the form of a human, the form of a servant. But in addition to that, he goes even to the point of death. Jesus didn't just come to teach, but to die. Not only did God send the greatest gift, but the greatest gift made the ultimate sacrifice. So in Christ, John says, is where we get a grasp of true love, of ultimate love, of what love actually looks like and what love actually does. Love is not just passion. It's not just emotion, but it's action. It's self-sacrifice. That might be the essence of love, self-sacrifice. Love is giving. We see, we see here God is love. Because, okay, what does that mean? And then we see that God gives. God gives and he sacrifices for the benefit of another. So God is love. Okay, the next question will be, what does he do? How does he enact that love? How does he pour that love out? He gives. Love is giving by nature. Love is sacrificial. Love is working for the good of another. 
Okay, you can think about this with your money. When you give money to somebody else, unless you're ridiculously rich, you could use that money for something. But you give it to someone else for their good. When you give your time to somebody else for their good, that's an act of love. When you give your counsel to somebody else for their good, that's a sacrificial act of love. You might have better things to do with your time, things that could benefit you more, things that could make you happy, things that could tickle your fancy. But when you say, okay, I'll I'll sit down with you for an hour and give you my counsel and give you my advice, that's an act of love. That's an act of love. When you give someone care, that's an act of love. When you allow your schedule and your priorities and your comfort to be interrupted for the sake of another person, those are all acts of love. That's the essence of love. Okay? For those of you who have kids, you know that your schedule and your priorities and your comfort's interrupted by your kids all the time. Those are acts of love for your spouse. We give out of love. When we seek to practice hospitality with others, we're giving. That's an act of love. Service is an act of love. All of these things are acts of love. Okay, generosity might be one of the greatest ways to express love. Generosity with ourselves, with our time, with our resources, with our stuff. Generosity in itself is an act of love. Um, I love that verse in Corinthians, think, uh, 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, Jesus, who was rich, he had everything, but for your sake, he became poor. For your sake, he became poor. Jesus gave everything, including his status and his riches. He became poor so that in him, we might become rich. That's what Paul says. He who was rich became poor so that in him, you might become rich. That's love. These are all expressions of biblical love. And as we practice them, church, they're shadows and pointers to the greatest love. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When we see Jesus on the cross making atonement for our sin, that is love. That is the greatest love. When we see Jesus beaten and bleeding and thirsty and asking the Father to forgive those who are executing him. That is love. Love is seen in in the greatest gift, but also the greatest cost. John 13, chapter chapter 13, verse 1. John, John records Jesus is nearing the cross. He knows his hour has come. And he says that he is with his, his own, his disciples, and he says that having been with his own in the world, he loved them till the end. He loved his own till the end. Now we might hear that and think he loved them up until the end of his life. And that would certainly be true. But it means something more than that. It means that he loved them to the max. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them with all his capacity and capabilities. He loved them to the end of himself. That is how Jesus loves his people. And that is where love is displayed. In addition, while love is manifest in the person who came, while love is manifest in the price that Jesus paid, it's also manifest in who he paid it for. Verse 10, 
And this is love. Now look, not, not that we have loved God. Not that we have loved God. The price was paid for people, you and me, who have not loved God. But for people who have sin that needs to be atoned for. Jesus did not come for good folks. He did not come for obedient folks, for healthy folks. He didn't come for those who are deserving or those who are lovely. Jesus came for the undeserving. He came for the disobedient. He came for those who are sick. He came for the rebellious. We did not love God, but He loved us, and He gives us His best and takes our ugliest. He gives us His righteousness and takes our sin. That's the exchange that's made on the cross. Our sin for His righteousness. We need to keep in mind that the cross of Christ is a one-time historical event that happened in time and history. But we also need to keep in mind that the effect of the cross, what it actually did, continues on today. It did not end there at Golgotha. The effect of the cross continues on today. We start with God is love. God has loved. And lastly, we need to spend some time talking about the fact that God still loves. That's our last point. God still loves. God still loves. Look at me at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. He's given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the, of the, for the love that God has for us. Listen, again, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. God still loves us. We know this because he's given us his spirit. He's given us his spirit. That's what John says in verse 13. In in Christ, God says, he declares, actually, your debt is paid. So when we're in Christ, God makes a declarative statement. Matter of fact, Right, we, we repent of sin, we look to Jesus, we're covered by His blood, and God says, okay, your debt is paid. It's a legal transaction that's happening. Your debt is paid. But then God looks at us and says, and you were orphaned, but now I'm also bringing you into my family. Your debt is paid and you have a new family. And God says, the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to make my home in you, and you're going to become one of my people. Your debt is paid and now I live in you. That's what John says. That's what he means when he says that God's given us his spirit, that the Holy Spirit actually takes up residence in the hearts of believers. Okay, I'm going to do a little theology with you here. So for you guys who love this stuff, you can nerd out. For you guys who don't, just try to listen and track with this. I think it's important. We need to understand that how God works within himself and how he works when it comes to redemption. And for human understanding, the Bible uh, John Calvin calls it baby talk, right? The Bible kind of talks in ways that, that just help us kind of understand, get little pictures and glimpses of the, the cosmic truths and reality of what God is doing. So here's how the Bible lays this out. When it comes to our redemption, the Bible explains that, that it's the Father primarily who plans our redemption, who plans our redemption, and he does so in eternity past. Right? He purposes this in himself. He plans our redemption and he sends his son Jesus. He sends his son Jesus. Jesus then accomplishes our redemption. 
The Father plans and sends. The Son accomplishes. He does everything necessary to secure our salvation. He lives a perfect life and dies an atoning death. And then He rises from the grave. He accomplishes our redemption in time and history. But then thirdly, listen, Jesus lives, dies, rises, ascends, and then Jesus says, I'm I'm now going to send to you my Spirit. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and listen, the Spirit applies. The Spirit takes all that Jesus has done, and you know what He does? He makes His home in us, and He applies all of the work of Christ to us. He does this at conversion, and then He does this ongoing. The Holy Spirit actually lives in us, and He empowers us, and he, he, he comforts us. He equips us. He illuminates the Scriptures for us. He's our helper, Jesus says. Jesus actually said, it's better that I go away so I can send you the helper, the Holy Spirit. And He's with us for the rest of our lives. And this is His work, verse 14. We've seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. We confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Whoever confesses that, God abides in Him. See, the Holy Spirit works in us for confession. So when we're evangelizing to people, we want to give them truth and facts and use logic and all that, but we're not going to convince somebody to get saved. The Holy Spirit has to do that work. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads us to confession. He leads us to confession. Verse 16, we have come to know and to believe that God, the love that God has for us, God is love and whoever abides in God abides in love and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected in us. Church, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, working in us confession, working in us conviction. He convinces us about the truth of Scripture and the truth of Christ, and so we believe in Christ and we abide in Christ. All of that is the work of the Spirit. God still loves us. He gave us His Spirit. He's also given us His Word. He's given us His Word. When you hear Word, you're going to think Bible. Certainly that is true. But, but I want to talk about something a little bit more specific. He's actually given us His, uh, his promise. He's given us specific promises. Look at me at our last verses here. Verse 17 and 18. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence. There's the promise. Confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Church, we need to know that God has given us true and precious promises. And here's the first promise, the first truth. You are loved. If you're in Christ, you need to know that you are loved by Him who is Himself love. You are loved by Him who is love. You know and believe in Him who is love and in Him who has saved you. And and John says we can be confident. We can be confident in this fact. 
We can be confident for the day of judgment. Why is that true? Because there's no judgment for us. That's a promise. That's a promise. Look, there's plenty in life to be uncertain about. Maybe you can, if I, if I were to ask you one-on-one, what are, the, what are the things in life that you're most concerned about right now that you have uncertainty in? Maybe you would just go, oh, here's five right off the top of my head. My kids, my finances, my health. I don't know. Boom, 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 boom. Maybe you'd have things that you're just acutely aware of. What are you most uncertain about? The future of our country? What are you most uncertain about? John says, whatever else you're uncertain about, you, 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 you ought not be uncertain about this. You ought not be uncertain about God's love for you in Christ. You are actually loved. You and I need love. It's the deepest human desire. The deepest human desire. We all long for love. We all long for complete acceptance. We all long for the depth of relationship. We need love. But before we seek that or find that or get comforted from anybody else's love, we have to understand that we are loved by God. You are loved by God. Security with God, security before God. And if we have security in our relationship and our love from God and with God, then everywhere else we'll have security. Because this is the core of our identity. This is the core of our identity. And God has promised us We can have confidence in Him because He has loved us. We haven't loved Him. If we were the ones to love first, then we might be the ones to unlove first. But we weren't the ones that loved first. God was the one who loved first. And His love is unbreakable, uncaused, and unfading for His people. So I hope we take comfort in that. We have a crazy, we are in a crazy, crazy season. We just had a crazy election or are in a crazy election. I don't even know. We have lots of weird stuff going on. We got people apparently across the country getting sick. Uh, People are scared of another lockdown. Maybe you have job security fears. Maybe you have family members who are susceptible. Maybe you yourself are a little bit health compromised. Maybe you're at home right now listening to this because you're not at church because you have health issues. There's plenty to be fearful about. There's plenty to be nervous about. But here's where we need to start. We need to remind ourselves, get back to this point. God is love. He has loved and God still loves. God still loves. He loves you. He loves us as a church. He loves his people and all of his intentions, all of his actions, all of his sovereign will is always good and perfectly loving towards us. And we can take confidence in that church. We can take absolute, full and utter confidence in that. And I pray that we would do that together. Father God, thank you for the fact and the truth and the promise that you love us, that you care for us, that we can have confidence in your love, that your love is unbreakable, that your love is unfading, that your love is uncaused and that nothing will take away your love from your bride, from your people. Jesus, thank you for loving us with with a depth of love that we cannot even fathom. Thank you for displaying your love to us in your life and on the cross, that we can actually look and see your love recorded in the Holy Scriptures. And I pray, God, for myself and for my friends. Pray for our church body, 
that we would take a firm hold of the truth and promise of your love for us and care for us in Christ. That in our fear, we would look to you and your love. That in our anxiety, we'd look to you and your love. That in our uncertainty, we'd look to you and your love and your certainty and your stability. Would you help us in this, Jesus, as we navigate through this season? Amen.